Hello and welcome to The Tradecast. I'm Hayley McDowell and I'm a staff writer at The Trade Magazine. I'm joined today by our online editor, John Bakey, uh, reporter, Connor Guidry. Hello. Editor of The Trade Derivatives Magazine, Joe Parsons. Hello. And the editor of The Trade Magazine, Joe McGrath. Hiya. So, big news week, um, lots of stories and lots to talk about. So, John, would you like to give us a quick news roundup? Uh, I will, thanks, Hayley. Um, so, to begin with... Uh, some more criminal activity going on in the markets. Sure. Always like a bit of that. Uh, HSBC traders believed to have been arrested in New York. Um, this is all, again, around benchmark manipulation. Uh, but interestingly, uh, the original banks that, that pleaded guilty to the US Department of Justice, uh, City, JP Morgan Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, they all paid up their fines and so on. HSBC was not uh, part of that at the time. Uh, so the fact that one of their traders has been arrested likely means that they may be pulled into it uh, unless it's proven to be a, a rogue operator within the organisation. Uh, we've also got uh, former Aberdeen Bond Chief uh, looking to launch an OTC compression service for the buy side. Uh, David Hill, who was former COO of Fixed Income at Aberdeen, uh, is launching a company called Clear Compress. Uh, that's looking to uh, sort of cash in, I guess, on the, the trend for the buy side to start looking at doing their uh, compression uh, by themselves rather than relying on their, their banks and brokers. Uh, BC, uh, sorry, BGC uh, has acquired a UK equity derivatives broker called Sunrise. Uh, this is the latest, a pretty aggressive expansion strategy for BGC. Uh, earlier this year, it completed a uh, takeover of GFI Group worth some $780 million. And it's also made a number of smaller acquisitions uh, here in London and uh, also in Mexico. So um, they're certainly uh, expanding quite rapidly, I guess, as Talit Prebon is about to take over ICAP's uh, voice broking business. And, and I guess the, the two of those will be the real big players in that business once that happens. And sell side, it's apparently going to be increasing its fees uh, due to the cost of MIFID II compliance. Uh, Buy-siders will likely be expected to pay increased fees to sell-side as a result of this. Um, and, you know, we've seen a lot recently of uh, profits already being eroded for the big investment banks. So it certainly seems uh, highly likely that they will at some point have to pass those costs on to their clients, uh, which is potentially not very good for, uh, for the buy-side, but also... Uh, potentially not very good for the sell side if they can't convince them to pay that much. And then lastly, the FCA has invited uh, bids for a £120 million scrutiny contract, uh, which is essentially external consultants that are going to investigate regulated firms. It's asking for companies to to bid to help them and uh, the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority. And uh, they apparently intend for those, uh, those guys to be effective from April 2017. Uh, that's all uh, on, on the news roundup. Uh, Joe, you've uh, been having a bit of a closer look at what the FCA is uh, asking for, I guess, uh, around dark pools. Yep, we've seen our usual reams and reams of rainforest paper destroyed. Rainforest paper destroyed? We've seen our reams of rainforest. I'm sure they make the paper no. from the rainforest. <laughs> Should we try again? We have seen uh, rainforest destroyed uh, to make reams of paper for the regulators once again. Uh, they've put out another report of stating the bleeding obvious uh, in many cases, uh, this time from the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK regulator. 
um, on dark pools. Um, now, there are some points here that are pretty good to go away and think about uh, and worth a second look. Uh, they've made some key points for both uh, the operators of dark pools, but for the users as well. Um, in the findings where they made some criticisms in this thematic review, um, the full name thematic review on UK equity market dark pools, um, they did allocate um, sort of areas of concern to both the users uh, and to the provi uh, providers of dark pools or the operators of dark pools. Uh, but with users specifically, they said that they've still got concerns around um, whether sufficient due diligence is being done. Um, now, for uh, those who are interested uh, in best execution, um, the particular area of concern which might be worth a, a closer look are whether firms are drawing up sort of necessary and clear rationales as to why they're using dark pools. Uh, it seems that when the FCA had a, a closer look at this, there were some firms that couldn't say why they were using a dark pool or didn't have a clear rationale for that. Uh, they also found that some of the larger firms are shunning dark pools altogether. Um, but they also found that uh, in quite a number of cases, uh, users weren't aware of software changes that were affecting how dark pools operate. Um, now, this perhaps could be understandable if the dark pool operator hasn't sent a message out to market uh, saying that they're changing software and how it operates. However, uh, the FCA has said that it is down to the users to make sure that when they conduct their due diligence that they know that software changes are happening. So it's not an excuse to say, oh, well, they didn't tell us. If you've signed the contract and you've decided to sign up to use a dark pool, then you need to make sure that you keep abreast of changes to technology. Hmm. Um, obviously, you've got an obligation to your end clients. And if you're not doing that, uh, then you know, arguably that risk could be with you. So in the last hour, we've had a statement through from the Investment Association. Um, they've said that to assist their members in conducting um, further due diligence with regards to dark pools, uh, the Investment Association and AFMI, uh, the Association for Financial Markets in Europe, have said they've worked together to develop uh, a due diligence questionnaire, which I believe was known for some time, um, which covers dark pools um, as well as other trading venues and best execution policies. And they said that their members should consult that uh, if they've got any concerns about their own due diligence processes. So I guess this is one to watch. Uh, obviously, in the US, we've seen that there have been prosecutions uh, with, with regards to um, dark pool usage. Uh, and in the UK, they have stipulated the FCA that it is a different market. Um, however, some of the concerns that were flagged on both sides uh, of both users and operators were the same as we saw in the US before the prosecutions uh, came to pass. Okay, I'm, I'm, so probably don't say very much on it, but how is this critique compared to, say, the lit market? You know, is the same onus for due diligence placed on somebody to trade on London Stock Exchange as it is on, you know, Brokers Pool or, uh, you know, even Turquoise? It's a good question, uh, and there are some references to uh, to the lit market, and you know what are the benefits of, of dark pools actually outlined in the thematic review, which yeah. I think was good to note. Uh, the FCA also did say that um, it concedes that uh, when it first looked at this market, it, it thought that you know a lot of the publicity that had been around on dark pools was perhaps justified. Now, having spoken to the market and consulted more widely, it accepts that dark pools have a really important part to play. The comparison that you're looking for between the lit market and dark pools isn't really drawn out in terms of due diligence, however, in mm. terms of you know what best practice is for dark pools compared to what best practice should be for the lit market. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's a deliberate 
uh, notion from the FCA as to whether they've done that to um, sort of keep firms making the same uh, inquiries to, to all trading venues uh, or whether they just didn't want to distract from the, the key summary points that they've made. Mm. Um, but as I said, I don't think we've seen the last of this. I think we, there will be sort of further discussions and further reports coming out of the regulator. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, moving on from that, uh, Hayley, I believe you've uh, been having a little bit of a look at what the banks are uh, or how the banks are performing once again this week. Yes, that's right. So Goldman Sachs joins fixed income revival trend. Uh, you will remember from last week's podcast, uh, we reported on BAML's fixed income sales increasing 27% in the second quarter this year. Uh, similarly, JP Morgan reported fixed income revenues had increased a significant 35%. And now Goldman Sachs is the latest to report a surge in fixed income trading. Uh, their fixed income currencies and commodities revenues were up 20% um, from the second quarter of 2015. Um, I also wrote a story uh, from the earnings call at Goldman Sachs uh, where the CFO uh, revealed that they had shed uh, 5% of their headcount. Some of this was certainly in uh, fixed income currencies and commodities. Um, so not surprising really that you know some of the money that they saved there has, has contributed to the revenues um, being significantly higher. Mm. Uh, Morgan Stanley, on the other hand, reported... Uh, a slight dip in trading earnings in the second quarter. Uh, equity trading sales suffered most. Uh, they were down 9% to $2.1 billion compared to Q2 last year. Uh, they blamed the reduced volumes and levels of activity in Asia for the decrease in equities um, and a better performance in Europe and the US. And KCG came out yesterday and Brexit hit their trading revenues. Uh, sales in their global execution business unit fell 11%, although KCG Bond Point did set a quarterly uh, record for average daily fixed income value traded, uh, which was calculated at 203 million compared to 138 million in Q2 last year. Um, in other news, KCG also appointed a new chief, chief technology officer, Mike Blum. Uh, he was hired in January as a global head of client technology, and he is succeeding uh, John Ross, who is now retiring. Okay. It seems like second quarter is a bit more mixed, I guess, <coughs> yeah, than certainly. it has been in the first quarter, uh, which yeah. was all pretty disastrous, I guess. Yeah, compared to the first quarter... Um, the first quarter it was down across the board uh, definitely fixed income has seen some you know this revival um, is is that entirely sort of from you, what you've seen being Brexit led or is there an element of you know the fact that so many cuts have been made to jobs that these guys you know they're now saving money and yet still able to do what business there is out there I would certainly say from listening to the earnings calls um, you know JP Morgan Goldman Sachs um they have all definitely reduced their headcount, you know, made significant savings, which certainly has affected the revenues uh, compared to the first quarter. But we can't ignore that Brexit has, you know, increased volatility, it's increased trading volumes. Mm. Um, and I mean, I haven't read a Q2 uh, revenue report without the word Brexit in it. So yeah. Um, Oh, it certainly played a part. I guess we'll have to wait for uh, for Q three to see whether it's whether it's going to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for that, Haley. Um, now, Mr. Parsons, 
been a, a number of uh, people moving around in the industry, especially in the derivative space. Yeah, it's been a, a, a very big week. I don't know if everyone got the, the memo that they had to leave this week or don't know what it is, but it all started <laughs> off with uh, uh, ICAP. So um, they're sort of head of their electronic trading platform, uh, a guy called Gil Mandels is who's headed their EBS broker, which is yeah. um, their sort of fixed income and FX platform. Uh, he is to leave um, later this year. And uh, he, he founded um, Triana, which was acquired by ICAP in 2007. And um, his departure is quite notable is, is because you know, they're making this transition to become Next Group, which is yeah. uh, the, 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 you know, the electronic trading and technology special, post-trade specialist as well. So... Um, with him gone there, you know it it does leave quite a, a significant gap to fill. Yeah. Uh, as they make that transition. Uh, elsewhere, um, Kathy Lyle was probably sort of one of the most well known names in the derivatives industry. Uh, she is leaving, or she I think today was her last day at um, Curve Global, which is the London Stock Exchange's um, incoming interest rate derivatives platform. And um, been incoming for a while, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, for a while it's supposed to go in, in May and then uh, it's it's set to launch in, on um, September 26th yeah so um, she was chief operating officer um, and now with her gone see who, who picks up that role yeah um, and then there was the big news in, in the asset management world that uh, PIMCO hired um, Man Group's Manny Roman as its new chief executive so uh, he, he was Manny Roman was, was head of of Man Group, which is the you know, world's biggest hedge fund, um, and it's and it's come at quite a significant significant time as there's been a lot of turmoil within its senior management. Yeah. Yeah. So the head the head of equities who left last year, uh, and especially with um, Bill Gross as well, who who, who left in, in 2014. You know, this appointment of Roman sort of you know really sort of trying to go back to their fixed income roots. Do you think it's also to get a you know a big name? In the industry, somebody who's got you know that gravitas it's to bring, it's of having to bring back those clients that yeah. they lost when you know when Gross, when Gross left. Yeah, it, it, it certainly seems like a sort yeah. of a statement as an appointment. Uh, and, then, uh, and then also we had um, Ice Futures Europe appoint Stuart Williams as their new COO as well. Okay. He was uh, Ice's ex director of corporate development, and um, he also was sort of a major figure in the transition of life that became Ice Futures Europe. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of changes going on in the industry. Um, moving on from that, uh, Joe, I know that you had a few uh, a few friends in to talk about uh, <laughs> derivatives. Friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so we had we held our uh, uh, webinar on interest rates clearing for the buy side, um, and that we had uh, Barry Hangman from Aviva come in, Ricky Maloney from Old Mutual. Uh, Brian Oliver from Citadel and uh, Christian Lee from Catalyst as well. So talking about sort of a whole range of, of issues from sort of the state of readiness amongst the buy side, yeah. you know, what type of clients are engaging with clearing, um, and also sort of some of the sort of unintended consequences of looking at sort of pricing, um, the cost of doing it, at, at, you know, taking biz- certain business or certain CCPs and also how it's going to affect sort of trading strategies and types of products you can use and um, the recording that is on the website so if you want to listen to the whole whole webinar so it's a thrilling listen I can assure you 
that's on our website. Uh, okay, and I, I believe it will be appearing in uh, in print in the next trade of And in print. Okay, excellent. Um, and then finally, something that we've been talking about on the website all week, as I'm sure people have noticed, is uh, FinTech Week. It's the third, uh, third annual one this year, and it's been a pretty massive... A conference happening in London, bringing together the uh, the huge variety of people that that both work in fintech and potentially are interested in in buying fintech products. Uh, Connor, you've been there all week, so do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've learned? Well, John, fintech week was a lot of fun. They had a lot of great panels and exhibitions and. Just a conglomerate of some of the best names in financial technology were there to really educate the industry and the evolution of everything that's happening right now in terms of blockchain, in terms of smart contracts, and just everything going on. So the, the things that I'd like to highlight was uh, the lead lawyer of UBS's innovative sector discussed that collaboration is going to be necessary to get a developmental blockchain integrated into the industry. And I thought that was very interesting, John. That, mm-hmm. was, that was very, very surprising because, I mean, we don't really see collaboration with a lot of the big banks at, at the level that they were, they were proposing. And they were saying to sort of go along with regulation and compliances that are going to be, have to be necessary for blockchain to be yeah. implemented – there's going to have to be a common framework because right now all the banks and firms that are talking about blockchain all have their own ideas for what the digital ledger will be. So it, it, it's interesting to see that UBS, one of the one of the biggest names in the industry, would would propose an idea like this. Yeah, it's not um, perhaps not seeming so unusual anymore. A lot of the people that I've talked to recently around technology issues, particularly when talking about blockchain, have mentioned the fact that you know. The cost of, of staying in business has spiraled so much that, uh, in many cases, it makes sense to actually start working with people on on things which don't offer any real advantage. Settlement doesn't offer a competitive advantage; it's just something you need to do. Uh, and so, there's definitely a move towards that, and, and it sounds like that's really the feeling you were getting uh, at FinTech Week. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's not just settlement. I mean, people have been talking about using the ledger for all sorts of different yeah. ideas and uses. So, I mean, that's that's my main main point is how, how what that's going to come to in the in the coming years. Okay, sounds really interesting. Uh, uh, and talking of, of innovation, I believe there was also a bit of a, a contest for some of the WizKids in, in FinTech. Oh, yes, yes. They had a blockchain hackathon mm-hmm. where teams came together and had to just... It, it was very ambiguous and vague, the goal. It was... You had to develop something similar along the lines of, of utilizing the ledger. And it could be whatever whatever you wanted to do like it could have been just smart contracts or kind of compressing data and and the winning team actually what they did is is peer to peer lending but on a very personal level whereas an individual could swipe his government issued identification card and without having to do any registration immediately transfer funds to another individual in a completely other nation instantaneously Okay, and so they ended up winning the blockchain hackathon with an award of two thousand pounds and a fifteen-minute time slot to speak in front of the audience. And which really, really shocked me is one of the uh, engineers that developed their the winning blockchain was an eighteen-year-old American kid from Cleveland. So I just thought that was very interesting. Yeah, well, um, the billionaires of the future are. Uh 
All still in school, it seems, but uh, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Uh, but I am going to quickly do a plug, which I'm sure Joe will appreciate, that uh, we're currently looking for entries for our rising stars. And we certainly in are. Both London and New York, is that right? Yep, we're not discriminating which side of the pond you're on this time. Um, yeah, last year it was a successful um, event uh, and scheme that we ran across Europe. Uh, this time we're doing one in North America and in Europe uh, as well. So there are 80 places on the list for grabs. That's 40 people under the age of 40 who, who are up-and-coming buy-side traders uh, or who work in some capacity on the buy-side um, informing trade that, decisions. That's not the sell-side? That's not the sell-side. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, the, okay. the buy-side. Okay. Uh, people have been confused by this. We've written it down for them and we've still had some sell-side nominations oh, going maybe, through. Well, maybe those people these, didn't know. These are prestigious awards. I can't blame them for trying. Uh, indeed. Okay, well, thanks for that, uh, uh, Joe. And do uh, jump on the website and find out all the details of how to apply. Uh, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Uh, so I'd just like to thank uh, Connor, Joe, Joe, and Haley for uh, for joining me today. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>